unique yet common sense opinions on sports. This is Jeff Allen Sports Talk. And we welcome you again to another edition of the podcast. Lots to get to today. Coming up, our special guest and author, Jeff Perlman, who has a great book out called Football for a Buck, The Crazy Rise and Crazier Demise of the USFL. That conversation in just a few. But first, some thoughts about football in 2019. First, we tackle the NFL. Wildcard weekend was riveting. Going in, get this, evidence of the long season that is week to week and what you are in September and October is not what you are in December. Houston started 0-3, Indianapolis started 1-5, Seattle was 4-5, Dallas was at 3-5. Each of those teams thought to have had no chance to even make the playoffs, and they end up making up two games of the opening weekend. First in the NFC, Dallas beat Seattle 24-22. Dak Prescott having a big fourth quarter for the Pokes in that one. The Nick Foles magic continues as Philadelphia edge Chicago by a score of 16 to 15. Cody Parker, Cody Parkey rather, he doubled doing the game-winning field goal as time expired. He had hit, uh, what, six uprights during the season. Now they're saying that this one was actually tipped at the line of scrimmage. But nonetheless, a tough break for the Bears in that one. And I got to give it to Parkey. You know, a lot of times everything is out there. When all the success is out there, everybody's, you know, getting taken on the back pats. When your failures are out there, boy, they are out there. And he answered all the questions afterwards. In the AFC, Indianapolis took down Houston 21-7. San Diego beat Baltimore 23-17, dominating for three and a half quarters before the Ravens battled to make it close to the end. The game's compelling. Officiating a replay, not so much. Two blown calls in the Chargers-Raven game. T.J. Watt had a clear touchdown that replay did not confirm. I don't know how they did that. The ensuing play, Melvin Gordon appeared to have fumbled before the goal line. The Ravens recovered. They were on their way to score, but the officials were calling it dead. And that, of course, that play was overturned, uh, saying he was down short of the goal line. Chargers did eventually get the touchdown. Then in the Bears game, the Anthony Miller catch, it was stripped by Craven LeBlanc, was ruled incomplete because no one bothered to recover the ball. The two big problems with the replay is they don't correct calls that are clearly obvious, and it's ruined officiating because either they blow the whistle too early or not at all, neither of which is good. This week, it'll be the Eagles and Saints, Cowboys and Rams in the NFC with the AFC tilts featuring the Chargers, Patriots, Colts, and Chiefs. Let's hope replay and the officiating crews get their bleep together. As for the college playoffs, did Alabama deserve to be in? They got blown out by Clemson in the national championship, 44-16. The Tigers have now beaten Alabama in two of their three title games to lay claim as the dominant program in college football. And yeah, don't worry. There'll be another Bama Clemson showdown for the title next year. As long as this four-team setup is the way that it is, nothing will change barring a major upset. And I think both of these teams could lose a game or two next season and still be in the mix for the championship. Before we get to Jeff Perlman, I want to tell you about Cups and Pups Coffee. Matt and April, they set up their coffee cart weekday mornings between 6.30 and 10.30 on 441, about halfway between Clericono Coe Road and Rose Avenue. And they do serve all types of great coffee, 
all sorts of flavors, hot, cold brew. They do it all, and they do a magnificent job. So uh, if you're in that area, if that's on your commute to work like it is for me, uh, I would definitely recommend you stop. And even if you have to go a little out of your way, it is certainly going to be worth your visit. They also do events, so be sure to reach out to them on Facebook. Uh, Just search for Cups and Pups Coffee. I am now declaring them the official coffee of Jeff Allen Sports Talk. ABC Sports presents The season premiere of the United States Football League He's authored the likes of The Bad Guys 1, Boys Will Be Boys, and Showtime. And now his latest book is Football for a Buck, The Crazy Rise and Crazier Demise of the USFL. A book he had great passion for doing that many told him nobody wanted. But he stuck to his guns and did it anyway. And we welcome best-selling author Jeff Perlman to our program. Jeff, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Yeah, thank you. So... I can't believe people tried to discourage you from doing this. When I first heard about this book, I knew immediately I wanted to read it. Uh, how did you overcome the obstacles to get this published? Uh, I guess I was just kind of persistent and annoying. And basically I had a, uh, I, I pitched a book about Brett Favre that came out a couple of years ago called Gunslinger. And when I was pitching that book, I also wrote a proposal for the USFL. I'd want to do this book forever. I've been told, don't, you know, no one's going to want to, USFL book. And um, I basically, I had two publishing houses bid on the Favre book, seriously bid on the Favre book. And I, I said to uh, Held Mifflin, I said, um, I would take less money to do Favre if you let me do the USFL. So uh, they agreed. And I made crap money to do this book, but I really, really wanted to do it. So here I am, author of a USFL book. <laughs> and uh, Brett Favre to thank, I guess, in some regards, huh? <laughs> he doesn't know, but yeah. Exactly. So the USFL kicked off in 1983, but the first nugget of the book reveals the idea of the league actually hatched some 15 to 20 years earlier. Yeah, it was, uh, there was a New Orleans art dealer and businessman named David Dixon who really wanted an NFL team to come to the Crescent City. And, and you know, the NFL kind of wasn't budging. So he thought, well, if they're not going to do it. I'll do it. And, and he sort of came up with this idea of spring football and starting a league and he got investors, and then the NFL decided, okay, we'll expand to New Orleans. And the Saints came along, and Dixon sort of abandoned the idea. And then in the 80s, he just sort of, it never totally left him. And he, uh, he flew out to California to meet with George Allen, the former Redskins coach. He wasn't working at the time, just to run it by him, because um, he kind of vi- saw Allen as sort of a visionary and a football guy. Allen was, loved the idea. Spring football. Uh, you know, kind of inventive offenses, regional drafts. He just thought it was a good idea. So it launched in 1983, about about two decades after the original sort of concept. Well, of course, uh, we do our podcast here in the state of Florida, and uh, Florida very prominent uh, in the league. Uh, The Philadelphia Stars Mm -hmm. trained in Deland. The the, uh, New Jersey Generals trained in Orlando. And, of course, uh, Tampa Bay had the first team out of the shoot with the Bandits, where we actually got a a foretelling of what Steve Spurrier would be at the University of Florida. Yeah, well, he was – you know, they didn't want him as a coach at first. He was the offensive coordinator at Duke. Mm -hmm. And – they interviewed him to be the offensive coordinator of the Bandits before they had a head coach. And uh, when the when the 
when they went up to speak to him, he said, well, I'm only, I only want to, the only thing I want to do is coach. That's it. And there were two things that, um, sort of appealed that, that worked in Spurrier's favor. Well, besides his knowledge, number one is, um, the, uh, the owner, John Bassett liked that Spurrier just had his Heisman trophy, like leaning, like against a TV in the corner of the room. See, there's <laughs> something about that that really appealed to him. And then number two, he, he owned a dog named Bandit. And, uh, you know, the team name was a Tampa Bay Bandits. So they hired Spurrier, first head coach. He was in his 30s. He was the lowest paid coach in the league. And, uh, you know, kind of an offensive visionary. It's the thing about the USFL. They did a lot of things offensively, especially that weren't happening in the NFL. And uh, the Tampa Bay Bandits were high-flying. Their quarterback was John Reeves, another Florida product. The star-wide receiver was uh, Eric Trevelyan, another Florida product. Um, they were really, really good and really, really entertaining. And they also, one thing the Bandits did, they sort of took a minor league baseball approach to promoting football. They had a ton of giveaways. They did a uh, they did a uh, win a million dollars contest, and they called a guy down. You know, ticket number, blah blah blah. Come on down, you won a million dollars. And they bring him down to the field, and they get he gets to hold the big million dollar check. And the fine print was, you start collecting your million dollars, twenty thousand dollars, no, fifty thousand dollars at a time, beginning in twenty years. So some guy right now is still collecting his $50,000 at a time. Uh, <laughs> you know, he's never really a millionaire, but he did make money. Yeah, not bad at all. And of course, what certainly didn't hurt the bandits was having the, uh, uh, the likes of Burt Reynolds being a minority owner, who of course had Lonnie Anderson on his arm, and his good buddy Jerry Reed to uh, record their theme song. Yeah, bandit ball. They were, um, yeah, they were kind of, they were glitzy. Considering it was Tampa, Florida, they were sort of Hollywood. And, uh, you know, Reynolds was always inviting his, his sort of colleagues and peers down. So you know, on the sidelines would be like Dom Deloise on the sideline of a Tampa Bay Bandits game. Uh, you know, uh, they, they always sit there. The mascot was a, a guy on a bandit on a horse. And the horse would take these dumps in the tunnel before the team was, <laughs> was running out into the field. So they'd be stepping through the, the uh, you know, the horse craft to get onto the field. You know, they were just really fun. It was really, really fun. And Burt Reynolds wasn't just a nominal guy. Like, he was heavily involved. He gave all the players gifts at the end of seasons. He gave them satin jackets one year. Gave them gold uh, dip belt buckles another year. It was really a fun. And at the same time, you have to remember the Tampa Bay Buccaneers are terrible. They're owned by by Hugh Culverhouse, who's a horrible owner, a very unlikable guy. Meanwhile, the Bandits are just this fun, you know, kick-ass sort of football franchise. Yeah, and I do remember, uh, you know, I was uh, uh, working at, uh, at WKIS Radio in Orlando at the time, and uh, we were broadcasting the Bandits games, got free tickets. I went to a lot of games over there before the Orlando Renegades came on the scene, and it was a blast. And, and the fact that they were seemingly more popular than the Buccaneers was astounding. Yeah, well, they were better. They had better uniforms. They probably had better players. I think if those two teams had played that, I mean, Steve Young won from the LA Express with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and he told me, when he jumped leagues, it was a drop down in talent as far as going from the one team to the Buccaneers. The Buccaneers are putrid. This was after Doug Williams left, actually went to the USFL. Their quarterback was Jack Thompson, throwing Samoan. They were horrible. And the, and the Bandits were really, really good. So there you have it. And then uh, uh, later on down the road, the Orlando Renegades, uh, they were born, of course, when the Washington Federals, uh, who were who were just miserably failing in D.C., uh, they relocated to Orlando under uh, Don Disney's ownership. And uh, and then we also got to see before America fell in love with Lee Corso on ESPN's College Game Day, Central Florida fell in love with him here. 
Yeah, it was kind of funny. Corso was a good interview for this book. And he said, I'm so the, the Renegades are terrible. Um, their best player was probably the quarterback, Reggie Collier, who wasn't really that good. And uh, they kind of suck. I mean, they were just Washington in redress uniforms. And, and, and Corso told me, he told me a funny story. He said, um, when the league was about to fold, the NFL was swooping up USFL players. And Don Disney, the owner, called Lee Corso and he said, Lee, I have good news and I have bad news. He said, the good news is the NFL is paying a lot of money for USFL players. He said, the bad news is they, won't, they don't want any of ours. <laughs> yeah, ouch, that had to sting a little bit. And of course, uh, 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 at that time, uh, Chris Mad Dog Russo, I was his producer at that time, and he used to do the coach's show with, uh, with uh, Lee at a steakhouse called Charlie Steakhouse. Can you imagine these two wow. high-blooded, fast-talking Italians uh, uh, doing a radio show? And uh, a great antidote I had from that uh, time was that they did a roast for Corso after the season. And Chris was invited to uh, be one of the roasters. And I actually gave him one of the lines that he used. Uh, so uh, pardon me while I pat myself on the back here. But uh, uh, I, I said, yeah, you know, uh, coach, when you came to town, you told us it was going to be exciting, high-flying offense, the balls are going to be in the air. You didn't tell us they were all going to be punts. <laughs> ah, nice. Well played. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. so, I mean, the thing I will say is like, uh, yeah, the Renegade sucked. And, you know, whatever. The team only lasted one year. But um, – you talk to these guys and they just like, they just really loved it. Like the experience was really something special. And, and um, you probably remember Bugsy. Do you remember Bugsy? Yeah. Bug, Bugsy Engelberg. Yes, uh, sir. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a sad, you know, after the, uh, he was their general manager and head of player personnel and maybe a year within a year after the USFL died, he committed suicide. And um, one of the great talent evaluators in football, actually. And I, I heard that from NFL and USFL guys. Like yeah, I just, he was the perfect guy to find players for your franchise. He started with Tampa Bay, then went to Orlando. And uh, I bet if they had time, that I actually think Orlando, it's really interesting. I think if the Orlando Renegades, if that league had lasted a few more years, I think the NFL would have considered Orlando as a possible merger city. Um, I really do. It just, it just died such a quick, it only lasted one year. Although that did, uh, in some ways, help lead to Jacksonville landing an NFL team down the road because the Jacksonville oh. Bulls actually came in into play later down down the road. Now, my most of my recollections of the Jacksonville Bulls are basically their highlights uh, being shown on the old HBO series First and Ten with Delta Brook as the as the uh, California Bulls. <laughs> oh, funny! Well, they um, they were great. They were so the Bulls. First of all, they um, they led the league in attendance both years. Uh, they drew a ton of people. I don't think the Jacksonville Jaguars even remotely exists without the Bulls as sort of this blueprint. The Bulls were the blueprint, right, of a mid-major city and how it could work. That, yeah, you don't have the population of a New York or Chicago, but you're going to have a diehard fan base that's really, really into the team and really feels it personally because they're so small that they take ownership of it. And that happened in Jacksonville. And the other thing is, uh, my favorite bit of trivia about the Jacksonville Bulls, they had three Heisman briefly in the uh, 1985 season, they had three Heisman. Yeah, 85. They had three Heisman trophies in the same backfield because Archie Griffin won two at Ohio State and Micro Zero won one in Nebraska. And for a very brief period of time, uh, those two guys played together on Jacksonville. And it's interesting to note that you know while there were some teams that uh, were 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 very good, then there were some others that struggled. And uh, I think the the most interesting team in the book, uh, which I think you would certainly uh, you devoted quite a bit of time to was the San Antonio Gunslingers. Uh, and, and what a, what a, what a mismatch of, of strange oddities <laughs> that team was. 
Yeah, they're my favorite team in the history of any sports anywhere. Um, first of all, they're, they hired as their coach. They were an expansion team in 1984. They hired as a coach this guy, Joe Stenke, who had last coached Texas A&I like eight years earlier. So other teams are hiring like George Allen and Chuck Fairbanks and Walt Michaels, and they're hiring Joe Stenke. And Joe Stanky only has seven fingers because he lost three in a lawnmower accident. And he suffered from early onset dementia. And he coaches from the stands because he says he can see better. So he has a pair of binoculars in the stands sitting next to his wife and coaches from the stands with a walkie-talkie and binoculars. Um, <laughs> they, uh, they played in a converted high school, really a high school stadium, Alamo Stadium in San Antonio, with this turf that was so thin and cheap above a, a you know, slab of concrete players would get these skin burns that were, you know, monumental, like the size of Alaska skin burns on their body. And the team was so cheap, they never cleaned the field. So every time someone would, you know, spit on the field or whatever, you know, snot themselves on the field, the stuff would stay there. And then you'd slide on it, get a skin infection, <laughs> have it combined with the spit and snot of some defensive lineman for the other team. And the infection, the San Antonio Gunslingers led the league in skin infections from their field. I mean, it's Absolutely crazy. There are a million stories from the, from the Gunslingers. The most, the most exciting, interesting, bad football team ever. Yeah, and then and then and I th- also looking at this uh, from a league wide perspective. And I know back in the seventies and eighties, it was pretty, you know, a raucous time. But it almost seems to me like the USFL probably had more drugs, partying, sex than any league alive. <laughs> would that be accurate? I would say, yeah, I would say so. I mean. You know, cocaine was a big problem in pro sports back then altogether. And the, the thing about the, the USFL is it was gathering guys who, a lot of guys who were sort of on the fringe of the NFL, either for a skill reason or also for personal reasons. And they were taking absolutely everyone. They were giving, I mean, you know, the uh, Joe Gillen, the former, co- uh, former quarterback for the Pittsburgh Steelers, uh, had a major cocaine problem. And he was... He was starting for the Washington Federals while he was living in a drug halfway house or in his automobile. There are a lot of guys like that, a lot of coke, coke heads in the USFL, and especially uh, certain teams like Washington, like Denver, really struggled. And not only were the, the players kind of crazy, I think uh, some of the owners might have uh, qualified for that as well, uh, particularly in Los Angeles and in New York City. <laughs> yeah, well, the LA one was a guy named Bill Lundberg. He was a complete total nut job. He didn't even have the money he said he had. Signed Steve Young to the $40 million annuity contract. Um, it's, I mean, yeah, insane. And then, obviously, the guy in New York is, is the one and only 45th president, Donald Trump, who, here's, here's Donald Trump in a nutshell as a USFL owner and how it sort of uh, forecasted what would, be, what would uh, come. He... Um, in leading up to the 85 season, he signed Doug Flutie out of Boston College to be the team's quarterback. And he wrote a letter to the other. He, he paid more money for Flutie than any player in NFL history uh, or pro football history. It was a six-year, $8.3 million deal. And he wrote a letter to the commissioner of the USFL insisting that the other owners pay for Flutie's contract. <laughs> um, I would say Flutie was the Mexico wall before the Mexico wall. And the other owners, much like Mexico, said, yeah, no, we're not paying that. But it was so presumptuous. And, um, you know, Trump really wanted the USFL. He really wanted an NFL franchise. He saw the USFL as a ticket to getting in the NFL. So he pushed the move from spring to fall. He pushed the lawsuit. He thought the NFL would cave and they'd end up with a, uh, with a merger. And none of that happened. And I also found interesting, too, that, you know, the, the, the owners uh, with, with all that going on, they, 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 they had money problems. They had 
just all sorts of issues. And they did not have a united front as owners. And it is also kind of speaks to the commissioner, Chet Simmons. You know, it was almost like he had no power at all, which, you know, I mean, you wouldn't want him to be, you know, Roger Goodell with too much power, but, and, and obviously the commissioner works for the owners, but the commissioner should have some gravitas, you would think. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I, I, I should just thought of this now while you're saying it. It's sort of like how it is. It's like how uh, when Ty Lue was coaching the Cleveland Cavaliers and you knew LeBron James was running that team, that it was LeBron James's team, just like in L.A. now. You know Luke Walton's the coach, but if LeBron James wants him gone, he'll probably be gone. And the USFL, they lined up the owners first before they got a commissioner. And all these guys are worth millions, if not billions of dollars. They're all very successful businessmen political figures, etc. So Chuck Simmons comes in, and yeah, he'd been the president of ESPN, but um, he, he never had the power. And once Trump came along, Trump just steamrolled him, absolutely steamrolled him. So, uh, you know, they fired the commissioner after the second year, brought in another guy, Harry Osher, he was steamrolled too. Just how it goes. So let's go back to the beginning of the league. Of course, uh, I, I found it interesting, uh, and we mentioned Lee Corso earlier, that I've forgotten he was actually the analyst alongside Jim Lampley for the very first game that it premiered. And I thought it was very interesting that Jim Lampley didn't just come out selling the league. He was like, hey, uh, you know, I'm going to wait and form an opinion on this. You realize if a play-by-play yeah. guy did that now, <laughs> he'd probably be fired on yeah. the spot. <laughs> I just saw that broadcast actually the other day. Um, I would just I still watch USFL clips every now and then, and it's actually really funny. So the first game was uh, the game you're talking about was Chicago visiting Washington, and the coach of the Blitz was, as I mentioned, George Allen. This is how the USFL. This is sort of the wild, wild west of the USFL. George Allen was the coach of the Blitz. The Washington Federals were terrible, and in the lead up to that first game, George Allen had two of his assistants. He gave them USFL windbreakers had them attend the Washington Federals practices with cameras, told the Federals people that they were part of the league film crew, uh, filmed all their practices, brought them back to Chicago. The Blitz knew every play those guys were going to run. And if you watch that, you know, the whole game is on YouTube. First play of the game is a sweep by Craig James for Washington. And he gets smothered for like a three-yard loss because they knew exactly what was coming. And they killed him the whole game. It was just a joke. And, of course, when the league started, uh, uh, the, they really made a big splash. And uh, when, when Herschel Walker, who was not eligible for the NFL, decided he was going to come out of college. So he gave the league some forward momentum right out of, right out of the shoot. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, so people forget, or maybe people don't know, Herschel Walker was like, he wasn't just a Heisen Trophy winner. He was a Jim Thorpe-type figure coming out of college. And after his junior year at Georgia, he came from a very small, poor town, Poor family, Wrightsville, Georgia. Um, you know, his dad was basically a sharecropper. His mom, I don't think, worked. They had almost no money. And after his junior year, winning the Heisman Trophy, his family was like, maybe you can make money and go pro. And he called the USFL. He's, he's a guy representing him named Jack Mann called the USFL. He said, Herschel wants to come out. And, and at the time, the NFL did not take underclassmen. So the USFL sort of heads, I don't know, and delayed, and blah, blah, blah. Finally, they decided, how can we pass up this sort of figure coming into our league? Herschel Walker signed. He's on the cover of Sports Illustrated uh, in March 1983, hitting pay dirt in a New Jersey General's uniform. I mean, it was a huge, huge, huge. Imagine some league now, um, I, I don't know, whoever, you know, some league, one of these spring leagues starts now, and they get the reigning Heisman Trophy winner who decides to join them instead of the NFL. That was the equivalent of Herschel Walker going to the USFL. It was a huge deal. 
And then the other compelling story from the USFL, in my opinion, was the Philadelphia Stars eventually became the Baltimore Stars, and they were uh, in all three championship games, I believe, and won two of them. And uh, and uh-huh. and of course, Jim Mora was there was there was their coach, and Carl Peterson, who is many of from his GM days in Kansas City. That that was a, an incredible football team that probably would have been NFL competitive. Yeah, I think so. I think they were they were seven to nine, eight and eight NFL team. They um, first of all, more you know, the first coach was actually George Perlis, who uh, accepted the job, then went to you know got off of the Michigan State job a few weeks later and had to take it. Uh, so then they went with Mora, who was an assistant with the Patriots, and uh, Carl Peterson had been the you know with the Eagles. He jumps to the Stars. He's really savvy. He's also really well connected. Um, you know, the, the big one for me is he gets a call one day from Sam Ritigliano, the coach of the Cleveland Browns at the time. He says, listen, we cut a guy, and I think we should sign him. And he's like, well, who, who is he? He's middle linebacker, Sam Mills. Guy's going to be great. He's like, well, why'd you cut him? He's like, he's only five foot nine. And, uh, you know, Peterson's like, I can't, I can't sign a five nine middle linebacker. Ritigliano's like, trust me, just you'll see this guy. Sam Mills, Montclair State, Division Three. Yeah, cut by Toronto, cut by Cleveland. Teaching photo and woodshop at uh, East Orange High School in New Jersey, signs for forty thousand dollars with the Stars, and goes on to be one of the great linebackers in USFL and NFL history. And then they also, had, you know, they had a ton of really, you know, Bart Oates, William Fuller, Sean Landetta, Kelvin Bryant, on and on and on. They were just a great franchise. I really do. I think they would have been a very good NFL team. So then, of course, it was the big lawsuit that, uh, that the USFL actually won and, and leads into the title of your book. <laughs> um, and, and, and it all came to a, a shuddering close. And I think people kind of saw that coming in some fa- in fashion, although it was surprising. People started to react because, you know, the USFL actually won the lawsuit, but uh, the demise was uh, basically sealed by the, the amount awarded. Um, how sad a day was that? Well, I mean, I was just a kid, so it wasn't so sad for me. But I mean, the thing about the USFL was, one of the things about it, it really was like a dream maker for, for football players. There were tons of guys who were cut from the NFL or played at smaller colleges or came from Canada. And this was their opportunity. I mean, this was their dream. So, you know, and the court, you know, they come back with the verdict. And at first, it's the USFL has won. And, you know, I, I interviewed a ton of guys who were like, it was that holy crap moment. We won. We won? Holy crap, we won. And then it's like, yeah, but you only won a dollar. And, you know, like Chuck Messina, who came in second to Billy Sims in the Heisman Trophy voting in, I think, 1979. Um, you know, he was taking classes at LaSalle. And he's sitting in his class, and his teacher interrupts the class to tell me one. You guys won. And he's like, oh, can I go call my wife? And he runs out to a payphone and he calls his wife. And she's like, did you not hear the amount? And he goes, no, what? Uh, you want a dollar. And it was just, you know, when, as soon as they heard that, they knew it was over. And it really was. You couldn't, they couldn't afford to go on. So the, the, the league comes to an end. And then a lot of players, you mentioned several that, that came from the Stars. Uh, a lot of players then went on to to some some uh, great fame in the National Football League, probably more than than maybe would have been expected at the time, possibly. Oh yeah, I mean there were at one point I think it was Tex Sam was out of the Cowboys who asked how many guys in the USFL can play in the NFL. He was like maybe a dozen, ended up being almost two hundred. 
you have four Hall of Famers, Steve Young, Jim Kelly, Gary Zimmerman. Um, oh, my God, I'm having a brain freeze. Steve Young, Jim Kelly, Gary, oh, and Reggie White. Yeah. Four Hall of Famers um, went to the NFL. Tons of coaches, Steve Mariucci, John Fox. I mean, um, you know, tons and tons and tons of players, guys like Jojo Townsout to the Jets, uh, Kent Hall to the Bill. I mean, there's just a onslaught a really great player. I would say a couple months ago, I was watching um, highlights of the 87 Super Bowl. That was the Redskins and the, uh, and the Broncos. Doug Williams was a quarterback for the Redskins, straight out of the, from the Arizona Outlaws. He threw four touchdown passes in that game. Three of them. One went to Kelvin Bryant from the Philadelphia Stars. One went to uh, Ricky Sanders from the Houston Gamblers. One went to Gary Clark from the Jacksonville Bulls. Three of his four touchdown passes went to USFL Refugees. Um, the impact of that league was insane. So I wanted to get your thoughts on the uh, the two new spring leagues that are coming out, the Alliance of American Football and XFL 2.0. So first of all, the the Alliance, um, they're plain and simple. Their mantras are going to be a developmental league, and they're there to kind of be at the aid of the NFL. Um, what mm-hmm. is your take on how successful they might be? I think it has a better chance of the two. Uh, I don't think you can take on the NFL now. I mean, the NFL is a monster. Uh, and I do think, I, I always thought, I think one of the drawbacks, one of the flaws of the USFL, or one of the lessons it should be from the USFL is, you know, if you're, if you're the San Diego fleet of the new league, that's one of the teams, and you have a quarterback maybe who played in San Diego State, and he plays really well, and the Dallas Cowboys want to sign him, I think the best thing you can do is celebrate that. Make it, you saw him here, and now he's there. Like, that's the way to go about it. So I actually think they're really smart. I think the XFL, uh, the thing they're going to have to overcome. I mean, I, I like that uh, Oliver Locke is involved. He's really smart. Um, but the, I just think the, the Vince McMahon's image is so bad and wrestling's fed, uh, image is so goofy. And the XFL first time around was sort of goofy as well. It's a lot to overcome. And I find it interesting that the, the, the new version of the XFL, you know, the, the original one was uh, about uh, being raucous, uh, sexy, the anti-NFL, and now they're going to try to sell family-friendly, which uh, <laughs> it's amazing how, how times change, right? It's also kind of embarrassing. Like, um, you're this guy, Vince McMahon, and, you're, you know, you've, you've, you've had this sort of empire in wrestling for years. It's involved how many performance enhancers. And then guys who get in trouble, and all of a sudden your mother Teresa. And the other thing is, like they're saying they won't have players who got arrested. Yeah, you know, that's one of the things. And I have players who get arrested. Like I don't, I don't even know what that means. Like some guy gets arrested, now he can't play in your league anymore. I mean, it's just. Uh, it's one, I'm not saying you should allow guys who you know sexual assault or whatever, blah blah blah. But I mean, people do get arrested, and I don't. I just think the whole thing is really is stupid. It just sounds stupid and contrived. Well, before I let you go, the, I want to get a couple of quick comments about one particular player that, uh, that, that you follow in the book. And I think um, his story alone is, is – there's so many great stories, but I think his story alone, it would be worth, worth buying the book, uh, is one uh, Greg Fields. Uh, you got a few comments on that without giving too much away. <laughs> yeah, I love Greg Fields. So Greg Fields was a defensive lineman out of Grambling. His nickname was Big Taper. He played for the Baltimore Colts one year, 1979. He was in camp with the Atlanta Falcons, I think a year later. Got cut, but refused to leave, so they had to get an armed security guard to escort him out. He signed by the LA Express. Uh, he plays 83 with him. 1984, John Hadle, the coach, wants to cut him. Uh, he calls him in to cut him, tells him he's being cut. Greg Fields punches him in the face. He's dragged off the facility. He starts saying he's going to kill everybody. 
uh, <laughs> starts showing up at practices and just staring down people. He has a gun in the back of his car. The uh, Express hire Liberace's security guard, Nelson Mercado, to come to L.A. and protect the team. He starts following Greg Field around. He say, he told me Greg Field is literally showing up with a gun in his trunk at games and practices. And Nelson Mercado is there to make sure nothing happens. And only in the USFL, the San Antonio Gunslingers, in need of defensive line help, sign Greg Fields. He goes to San Antonio, plays the 85 season. By the end of the year, the Gunslingers stop paying their players. So Fields follows the owner home one day with a baseball bat and gets out of the car and says, I think you want to pay me. The owner goes inside, comes back out with $10,000 in cash, gives it to him and says, are we square? He goes, we're square. And he fades off into the sunset. <laughs> uh, yeah, my best friend also read the book and said that Greg Fields is now his all-time favorite player. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Just, my son owns a Greg Fields LA Express jersey. How about that? That is amazing. So, uh, yeah, I guess you, you had, at the end of the book, you, you mentioned that you guys uh, actually went in search of him and finally came across him. Yeah, we found Greg Field. We ended up, it was me, my, my then nine-year-old son, and Greg Field at a shopping mall in uh, Sacramento, California, eating Cold Stone Creamery. Probably wasn't my best parenting moment to bring my son to find <laughs> Greg Field, but sometimes you got to do these things. Well, I tell you what, it is a fantastic book. I thoroughly enjoyed reading it, and I'm sure everybody else will too. And um, and I definitely would recommend that. And uh, uh, Jeff, you're also a great follow on Twitter, at Jeff Perlman. Um, uh, how many stories didn't make the book? Would you have enough to do another? <laughs> no, not that many. People always say, oh, I can't imagine the stuff that made the book. I, to be honest, like most did. Like this was a empty or notebook kind of book. So uh, it wasn't like I'm holding out any amazing stories. It was pretty thorough what I, what I put in there. All right, Jeff Perlman, and thank you so much for joining us. His book is called Football for a Buck, The Crazy Rise and Crazier Demise of the USFL. Thanks so much for your time tonight. As we listen to ESPN's USFL theme music, uh, make sure you get Jeff Perlman's book wherever you get your books, either in hard copy or digital. It is a fantastic read. Before we close things up, I wanted to offer some other USFL memories that I have. As I mentioned in the interview um, with Jeff Perlman, the first broadcast on ABC had Jim Lampley and Lee Corso, and Jim Lampley did not come out of the gate with the promotion buzz that you might see in today's uh, media. I'll play a little bit of, back of that for you right now. Live in RFK Stadium, George Allen on the sidelines for the first time here since 1977. Across the way, Ray Yock coaching here after 12 years in the Canadian Football League as head coach of the Washington Federals. A drizzly cold day, not unlike the kind of weather you would expect here in RFK Stadium in late October or early November. It feels like football weather. Hello, I'm Jim Lampley, and I'll be honest with you. I will wait to see how many of you are that anxious to see football in spring, but everything I've seen and heard in the past three weeks leads me to believe that this experiment, the United States Football League, has a great chance of flying. Clearly, in my view, there are enough pro football players to go around for this league to field a credible product. And clearly, there are enough big-name football coaches, some of them with long-standing identities in American football, who are willing to commit themselves to this project. The rest 
is up to you. But if you're going to stick with us today, you're going to see a lot of new faces and a fascinating storyline. One of the new faces, Lee Corso, who is working here with us at ABC for the first time, formerly the head coach at the University of Indiana and one of about two dozen college football coaches whose contributions to American higher learning have been terminated in this past uh, fall football season. Lee, very nice to have you with us. We're going to see in the personalities of George Allen and Ray Yuck, two entirely different men, one of them well-known to Americans, one of them not known at all. Yeah, absolutely. Everybody knows George Allen. They've heard about him. He's a fine football coach, but when you get down to it, I've known Ray Yock for about 10 years, and I'm very impressed with him. He's an intense individual. He looks a lot older than he is, you know, but that's because he was a head coach a long time. He come out of the Canadian League with Edmonton and Winnipeg, and he knows how to win. Thought that was interesting. You know, Lampley uh, definitely countered his comments, uh, mentioning, hey, you know, the USFL is going to have some some talent. This could be a good thing. Uh, what I like, though, is he, you know, could you imagine, like, if Joe Tessitore was uh, introducing uh, the USFL in 2019, he'd be telling you this was the greatest thing ever invented. So I like the fact that he tempered that and uh, but still lent some credence to what the USFL USFL could be, and of course, Lee Corso, that was before college game day, that was before he coached the Orlando Renegades. One of my other big memories of the USFL, I really enjoyed going to uh, Tampa for Bandits games. They were they were amazing uh, to watch. It was a great atmosphere, a fun team, and they had one of the best all-time best team theme songs in all of sports, performed by the great Jerry Reed. Late great Jerry Reed, one of the uh, great buddies of Burt Reynolds, who was a minority owner of the team, as we mentioned, and uh, that also lent to the excitement whenever they would fire that up uh, during games over at the old Big Sombrero at the original Tampa Stadium. And my final memory is I got to say I actually worked for ESPN in my career. When the Federals came to Orlando to be rebranded as the Renegades, I got to put together a crew to do stats for ESPN whenever they came to town to broadcast games. So to do some prep on how it works, one of my great friends, Rick Turnage, and I went to Tampa uh, for an ESPN broadcast to shadow and see how it was done. We spent the first half watching the game up in the booth, watching the statisticians do their thing. We were nearby Jim Simpson, the legendary play-by-play guy, and Paul McGuire, Yes, that Paul McGuire, who went on to uh, uh, be part of uh, ESPN's Sunday night broadcast crew for the National Football League. And after the first half, we had all-access passes. So Rick and I decided to uh, tour Tampa Stadium in all its glory. So we could go down on the field, watch a little bit of the game there. We went to the locker rooms, all nobody was there. Went back up to the press box, enjoyed some food and beverages. <laughs> all on ESPN's dime. And of course, uh, 
ESPN paid, I think, like, it was, I think we got, like, 25 bucks a game for doing stats. And I will tell you, I don't know what it's like today because technology, I'm sure, has is, is, is improved the process. But doing stats, I mean, you, these guys are really unsung heroes of broadcast. When you think of all the people that go in the background doing all the technical work and stuff like that. So you would have one guy who kind of, like, be the lead person who would be... Uh, uh, kind of like overseeing the group then you had like one person covering for each team especially on the offensive stats so for example they'd hand off uh, to a running back he'd get five yards you had to immediately say number 14 three yards and then another person who would be tracking that would say all right that person has five carries for 37 yards and they wanted that lickety split because they wanted to fire up the graphic and get that on screen as quickly as possible. And if you didn't respond immediately, producers were in your ear. What do you get? What do you get? What do you get? And, and then you heard all the chatter going on throughout the broadcast. I never came away with a bigger headache in my life than <laughs> doing stats. So I, I don't know, if, again, if it's the same today, but God bless anybody who's ever done that. It is definitely... Uh, definitely a tough job, and you don't get paid much, but you get a great experience out of the process. Well, thank you for indulging me with this uh, all-USFL edition of Jeff Allen Sports Talk. And a reminder, please do subscribe if you haven't already. Available on all the platforms. Quickest way to go, JeffAllenSportsTalk.com. Click on sub- subscribe, and then you can hit the logo of your favorite podcast experience. And with that, we are done here. Thanks for listening to Jeff Allen Sports Talk. Follow Jeff on Twitter at Jeff Allen underscore 88 on Facebook at Jeff Allen 88 and the website Jeff Allen Sports And you can reach out to the show anytime by email Jeff Allen Sports Talk at gmail.com. Jeff Allen Sports Talk is brought to you exclusively by Kramer's Salve for Dogs. Kramer's Salve is a safe and natural approach to help your best friend live an itch-free life. It's made from the finest ingredients so it stops itching, heals hot spots, and painful inflamed skin. Kramer's Salve contains a proprietary blend of neem, an ingredient known for its healing properties. A 4-ounce 6-month supply, including shipping, is just $30, and the 2-ounce 3-month supply, including shipping, is only $20. Help your dog in the itch and hot spot cycle. Order today at Kramersalve.net. That's K-R-A-M-E-R-S-A-L. LVE.net.